today on Ag News Daily. People always talk about it as, as there is a lot of different definitions out there, but what is pretty consistent is there's a recognition that sustainability is about more than just the environment. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Madison Honkamp here, joined with Delaney Howell. Delaney, how are you doing? I'm pretty good, Madison. We've got some cool interviews coming up here over the next couple of days talking about the Green New Deal. So we've got um, a lady who is the Senior Director for Sustainability Research for the National Cattlemen's Convention. And we've also got a Kansas cattlewoman. So we've got a couple of good interviews coming up, two different kind of perspectives, I guess, in regards to greenhouse gas emissions, the Green New Deal, and really just agriculture playing this sustainable footprint. So I encourage folks to stay tuned into those today and tomorrow. Yeah, those will definitely be very interesting because that's a hot, kind of a hot topic in the news. Absolutely, it is. But speaking of news, Madison, what is on your news docket for today? So to kind of go with the Green Deal and sustainability, I just have two things here. So for Story County last night, there was a meeting in Nevada and it was the Board of Supervisors was holding a hearing for the Iowa Citizens for Community Improvement Group. And basically what they are kind of pushing for is a moratorium on factory farms, which is kind of putting a cap on expansion for factory farms. And a lot of their arguments were um, that, that, you know, livestock kind of have those greenhouse gas, they emit those greenhouse gases and they're taking down the, our quality of air, our property value, and even um, contaminating the water. So I just kind of thought it was interesting that they are kind of trying to put a cap on livestock production because also then if this um, gets passed, it will go to state and then it could be Iowa law Mm -hmm. possibly. Yeah, and that's interesting too because, so yeah, I guess we should back up. Story County and Nevada is Iowa focused. But Iowa sets the precedent for a lot of other things. I mean, you look at the nutrient reduction strategy. Iowa's been a leader in that. A lot of states, especially for agricultural measures, turn to Iowa uh, to guide their own agricultural practices. So it would definitely set some waves or make some waves here if we saw that passed in Story County and then at the state level. And I'm sure other states would consider or try to follow similar measures if we saw that passed here in Iowa. So that is not really great news for agriculture, is it? No, not at all. And I thought it kind of went along with um, the kind of pro-vegan campaign that is going on in the media right now. And I had a lot of friends that actually went to that meeting last night in Nevada, Iowa, and they said a lot of it was they were basically just kind of worried about the water quality and air quality and kind of blaming not just, you know, hogs and cattle, but also turkeys, chickens, and even aquaculture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They turn to agriculture a lot as the kind of to point the fingers. And that's perfect segue into today's interview with Dr. Sarah Place. She talks a lot about that and animal agriculture and more specifically beef. Um, they, we emit only 2% of the total greenhouse gas emissions. So people just have a lot of misinformation when it comes to agriculture as a whole, unfortunately. Yeah, exactly. And then even to kind of go along with that or to kind of counteract on that, 
Um, China's actually looking to expand their agriculture. So I thought that was very interesting because the U.S. is kind of taking it down a notch while China is trying to boost it, um, mm. their rural economy using agriculture. And they're kind of using um, soybean production to do this and to go to kind of go along with the new trade deal. The, so they are more focusing on kind of using production with their high quality land and then use the international market for when they're having they have shortfalls in it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you look at what's going on right now in the international scene. It's, I think it's no surprise that China is trying to build up its own agricultural system. It's trying to build up agricultural systems in Africa and South America. And especially when you look at what's going on with the trade deals right now, or really no trade deal at this point in time. But interestingly enough, a new report from the Nonpartisan Research Committee, which is the National Bureau of Asian Research, they put together a new report that's warning the White House that it's naive to expect that China will agree to make deep structural reforms to its economy in just the 10 days we have here before the March 1st deadline. So this report said the better strategy, and I think this is going to maybe burn some bridges in rural America, but unfortunately it's saying the better strategy is not to cut a deal right now with just half measures or some agreements and some compromises, but instead it suggests to wait out the Chinese economy keep tariffs on Chinese goods in place potentially for years or decades and work with other allies like the EU and Japan to basically put the pressure on Beijing to implement lasting reforms like reforms on intellectual property, on technology, on just being a more level playing field on the international market. And of course, we know that right now there are high-level trade talks continuing in Washington, D.C., and a little bit of news on that. President Trump said he is definitely, or President Trump has been hinting, of course, that he may back down on that March 1st deadline, and he said in a quote to reporters uh, just yesterday, he said, quote, I can't tell you exactly about the timing, but the date is not a magical date. A lot of things can happen. So it does sound like He's not saying March 1st is quite as hard of a deadline anymore, but interestingly enough, when you look at those, the, that report especially, that came out saying, uh, maybe we should take the long game here. So continuing those trade talks, we saw lower level talks begin Tuesday with Secretary Steve Mnuchin and Robert Lighthizer will take over trade talks tomorrow. And President Trump said the talks are going very, very well. So I don't know what else. They're keeping them pretty tight-lipped. So I don't know that there's going to be a ton of news coming out of these agreements. But any sort of good news or bad news could definitely spark the commodity markets and see a domino effect in other facets of agriculture. Yeah, that's definitely true. And I can under I mean, I guess I can understand why they're kind of keeping it behind closed doors just so... They know for sure, I guess mm -hmm. you could say. Absolutely. What's going to happen. And yep. Yeah. And maybe now they're realizing, hey, when we start releasing news, commodities change, agriculture changes. I don't know. I doubt that they're really thinking that far into advance. But we do at least have, I guess, no news is good news, right? So. That's true. That's very true. If there's not any huge news, that means it must be going well. 
Right. Fingers <laughs> crossed. But we do have some official news. The European Parliament's Trade Committee has officially endorsed the launch of U.S.-EU trade talks, provided, of course, that no new tariffs on auto or steel or otherwise are imposed. This is a non-binding resolution that supports the negotiations with, quote, a limited scope and articulated red lines like leaving agriculture out of the discussion. So that's good news that we do have official word from the EU that, yes, we can now move forward. I think it's going to be interesting to see how we proceed forward, though, because President Trump and the Trump administration has said we want agriculture to be part of the trade talks. But that's been kind of a hard and fast line for the EU saying they want to leave those out of the discussion. Well, the Trump administration has certainly been busy, of course, now with the government back in back in session. We've got funding until the end of September, and we've seen some ag groups and farm groups appealing to the Trump administration not to cut or propose cutting crop insurance this year, which has been a staple of recent annual budget submissions. The White House is expected to release its fiscal budget for 2020 next month. And we've seen now many groups saying, about 60 group act, 60 groups actually, saying that the farm income has dropped more than 45% over five years and an over-reliance on budget savings from the agricultural community and from crop insurance will unquestionably under, undermine rural economies. They say it's also important to note that in a time of uncertainty in the farming and ranching community from natural disasters to trade disputes to government shutdown, the public-private partnership that is crop insurance has been a consistent and reliable risk management tool. So as we know, we've seen Senator Chuck Grassley propose cutting crop insurance or crop subsidy money. And um, we know the Trump administration is looking for ways to cut down or cut budget money out to try and fund the wall and push it towards defense and other things. So a lot of pushback from agriculture, no doubt, on that issue. And we will see, of course, that budget, which is not set in stone, come out here within the next month or so for fiscal year 2020. Let's hope that they can get that budget out, especially um, for I. I don't for me, crop insurance, I can see as being important just because you never know what's going to happen with the weather and everything. And yeah, and I just losing all of that is. Yeah. I mean, we we see like manufacturing some other industries saying that's not Mm -hmm. fair. You're you're creating an unlevel playing field for farmers. But you just I mean, we have so many other external factors. Crop insurance is really important for for farmers to have some sort of a little bit of reliance on for for uh their markets exactly because especially with like manufacturing goods and things i feel like they can kind of control it a not i don't want to say a whole lot but Mm -hmm. a little bit more because they don't have as big of an impact or a big of a reliance i guess Mm -hmm. on weather and how that would affect it so absolutely and one of the new commodities now that can be offered crop insurance as part of this new farm bill is the product of hemp Lawmakers are now pressing the FDA to issue legal pathways for companies using hemp-derived cannabis oil, CBD, or products that use hemp in them. A letter signed by a dozen House members um, note that New York City has banned CBD-containing products as well as Maine and Ohio and a couple other states, so they're just 
pointing out to the FDA that they need to designate basically the three hemp seed derived ingredients, which would be hold hemp seed, hemp seed protein, and hemp seed oil, and suggest that the same approach be taken for CBD oil. So as we continue to see that new product flood the marketplace, I'm sure we're going to see some more controversy there with that as well. Are the products that use kind of the hemp ingredient more like the medical or I guess I don't even know what would what it, it would be in? That's a good question. So I just from like traveling, I mean, it was in New Orleans a couple of weeks ago. I see a lot of products that have like hemp oil in them and CBD oil. I think there's some confusion, though, because I'm not sure that. And listeners, maybe you can write in. I know we've had a couple of hemp folks on before, but I think hemp and CBD oil are separate entities. There is some THC in hemp, but it's a really, really small amount. So I don't think that you're getting a high from it like you would be um, from marijuana. So I think cannabis oil would be from marijuana use or from marijuana plants and hemp lotion or hemp oil or hemp foods wouldn't be, but I'm, I need to double check that. That's interesting. Cause I know I did see, so my mom does a lot of essential oil things yeah. and she uses young living and they had a cannabis oil and we were kind of talking about it when I was back home, um, right at the end of Christmas break with some ladies at our church. And we were like, if it's since, you know, it's illegal in so many States, I wonder if the oil is mm-hmm. would be considered legal. Yeah, but if, I, I guess it's if it's a, maybe something else. Or, I don't know. I think it's a case by case, state by state basis. I should say. Yeah. So that is all the news I had for today, Madison. Should we uh, hop over and check out the commodity markets? Let's do that. All right, folks. Of course, our commodity markets are sponsored by our partners at the Zayner Group, and they are going to be at the Commodity Classic next week in Orlando. So if you're going to be there. Make sure and hook up with them. You can hook up with me. I'll be there for a day as well. You can find Ted Seifred, who will be at the Commodity Classic next week. You can find him on Twitter at the Ted Spread on Twitter. You can also give them directly a call at 312-277-0050. Looking over across the boards today, we are at least seeing a little bit of green on the screen in the grain markets. The March corn contract closed up a penny at 370 and three quarters, while the May closed up a penny and a half at 379 and a half. In the soybean pits, the March contract up a penny and three quarters to close at 902 and a half, while the May up a penny and a half to close at 916 even. Wheat pit continuing its downward spiral today with the March contract giving up nine cents at 480 and three quarters, while the May uh, down eight cents at 484 and a quarter. Hopping over to look at the livestock markets here. February live cattle contract up 45 cents on the board today at 128.32 and a half, while the April up 75 to close at 129.20. In the feeder cattle pits, continuing that green action with the March contract up 12 and a half cents to close at 143.87 and a half, while the April a small gain today of seven and a half cents to close at 146.07 and a half. In the lean hog pits, continuing their downward spiral after yesterday's nearly limit down close with the April contract down limit at 52.97 and a half. The May not quite down limit closed at, closed down $2.42 at 63.02 and a half. And running on our markets with the dairy complex, February class three milk up two cents on the day to close at 14 even 
while the March down 14 cents to close at 14.56. Now for today's interview with Dr. Sarah Place from the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, we're going to be talking about sustainable the sustainability of beef. Well, we know now that the Green New Deal has been kind of a hot-button issue in agriculture. We've got a series of interviews here set up over the next couple of days to discuss those issues, one of which is today's interview with Dr. Sarah Place, who is the Senior Director of Sustainability Research for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Sarah, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Thanks for having me. So just as a background here, what as your role as Senior Director of Sustainability Research for the NCBA, what does that title do? What are you in charge of for NCBA? Yeah, great. So what I do is essentially um, direct the sustainability research program that's funded by checkoff dollars. So NCBA acting as a contractor with the beef checkoff. Um, so our research is really focused on benchmarking where we're at um, and actually addressing a lot of the misinformation that's out there. So we do research that's called life cycle assessment research. Um, it's essentially environmental accounting. So you can think about the whole supply chain of beef. We look at feed production, the animals themselves, and cow-calf and feed yard segment uh, through you know packing plants all the way to the consumer, and we look at the environmental impacts that happen at every stage of the actual production cycle for beef. Um, so we do research like that. We do research on um, what we call upcycling um, and also a lot of what my role is in this position is just communicating the science mm -hmm. to people because, um, as you mentioned off the top, you know, whether it's on the policy side or um, just things that are in news articles on a day-to-day -day basis, especially greenhouse gas emissions and cattle is quite a hot topic. Absolutely. And I want to get to that here in just a moment. But when you talk about sustainability, that's a hot word, a hot topic right now across all sectors of agriculture. When you're talking sustainability, what's the definition that you're using with that mindset? Yeah, so I think what people always talk about it is, is there is a lot of different definitions out there. But what is pretty consistent is there's a recognition that sustainability is about more than just the environment. So when we think about sustainability in beef, it's about producing a safe and wholesome product while balancing economic viability, number one, right? If our producers are not in business or can't be in business, they're not sustainable, um, social responsibility, and environmental stewardship. So it's really about those three areas together. Mm -hmm. And in more layman's terms, I mean, it's just about, it's about making money and staying in business, being a good community member, taking care of your animals, taking care of your land, it's really the day-to-day -day things our producers already do, and that's what I always try to emphasize to people is sustainability, it's, it's not something that you should be afraid of. It is what you're doing, and that's why it's so important for our agricultural producers from all sectors to be involved in this discussion because they're living it when it comes to sustainability um, and can infuse some reality into a lot of these discussions. Right, because as you mentioned, there are a lot of misinterpretations when it comes to especially policy-related things like the greenhouse gas emissions. Tell me about some of the research then that you've done and how you've gone about sharing that research that shows or highlights how beef is a sustainable uh, a sustainable product and we're not trying to pollute the environment as a lot of maybe out-of-the-box people like to accuse agriculture of doing. 
Yeah, so I think it's important is, you know, our, our work, we use our own research that we fund. And then also when it comes to greenhouse gas emissions, one of the great sources out there is actually the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, because every year they put out a greenhouse gas emission inventory um, that breaks up, you know, all the U.S. emissions by economic sector, including agriculture. And so we know when we look at that information that beef cattle directly emit about 2% of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions, and all of agriculture together is about 8.5% of emissions. Um, and just to give your listeners a frame of reference, I mean, transportation is around 27% of emissions, and electricity is about the same. So really, the bulk of greenhouse gas emissions in the United States come from burning fossil fuels, which probably isn't too surprising mm-hmm. uh, to most folks. And agriculture has a role, has an impact, but it's usually a lot smaller than what is stated in a lot of news articles or the attention that it draws. So, again, beef is just 2% of greenhouse gas emissions. So the other stuff that we do, you know, I mentioned upcycling at the top. And, like, what's what's important is sometimes, again, sustainability is about more than the environment, and it kind of gets pigeonholed into just greenhouse gas emissions. Um, And really, when we talk about upcycling and beef, it's really about transforming things that are of little to no value to people and making a higher value product. So that's what cattle do every single day, whether it's through the feed that they eat and all the grass and the hay and the other inedible products they're eating from dried distiller's grains to cottonseed or cottonseed meal um, to the land that they use as well, right? The vast majority of land used for beef production in the United States can't be used for cultivated agriculture. So we try to emphasize that as well, is that there's huge advantages of ruminant animals like cattle um, that are usually left off of the discussion. So I've got to ask, because obviously the Green New Deal is one of the things I wanted to discuss with you. What was your reaction when you read through that? I mean, she calls them farting cows, and it's just very apparent that she just doesn't understand agriculture and the tie that beef production has into the sustainability and whatnot. But what was your reaction to that? Yeah, just to clarify, I mean, I I don't work on the policy side of NCBA, but all I can tell you is looking, I I did read the, I actually read the whole Green New Deal in terms of the resolution itself. And to be clear, actually, the amount of information on agriculture in the resolution itself is pretty scant. So Mm -hmm. there's only about three bullet points. And uh, and cattle aren't mentioned directly there, but where a lot of this controversy came from was a, a frequently asked questions document that was put out um, on the Congresswoman's website temporarily. I think you can still find it on the NPR website. It was since taken down from her website. Um, and it contained a line in there about uh, farting cows and trying to eliminate them. So um, that's really where a lot of this attention has come from in the last couple of weeks when it comes to cattle. And just to clarify to your listeners, I mean, cow farts are fake news, right? (laughs) Cows do not fart out a bunch of methane. It actually comes out the front end of the animal, and that's true for all ruminant animals. Um, So that's a really important point of clarification is that, you know, if we can't even get the right end of the animal, you know, then we're probably not starting from a high informational value place. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, from a standpoint of... I think what this what this time really highlights is we got a lot of interest in climate change. 
Um, again, I think it's encouraging that people are thinking about agriculture because whether it's cattle production or all of agriculture, really we can be a key part of the solution when it comes to climate change. We're not just an emission source. We're also, you know, this is a very small group of people that uh, manages a huge part of the United States, right? So from a standpoint of land management and keeping carbon in the ground or enhancing soil carbon uh, sequestration, agriculturalists are a key constituency. So I think it's important just to be positive from that standpoint of whether it's people in Congress or anyone in the United States. I mean, most people are a few generations removed from the farm. And so uh, we do have to be respectful that people are coming at this from a from a place of ignorance and that's okay mm -hmm. you know we can we can provide that information and um, hopefully clarify things and I guess going off of that just a little bit here you we talked we've we've talked about obviously greenhouse gas emissions but the other thing I think that's maybe important we touch on too is the water usage and the sustainability of beef production as related to water. What are some of the studies or background to that aspect that you've done? Yeah, so a part of that life cycle assessment that I talked about earlier when we look at the whole supply chain, we don't just look at greenhouse gas emissions, we look at water use as well. Um, and what we know in our work agrees with much, much of the other work that's out there is most of the quote unquote water use for beef, and this is similar for all livestock products, is actually the water that's used to grow feed for the animals. Um, so I think probably your listeners, I mean, we're all we're all social media connected people and you see a lot of these memes that are out there, right, mm -hmm. that show um, really inordinate amounts of water being used for beef. And just a point of clarification is sometimes those numbers are just flat wrong or often they are, um, but also those numbers are referring to the, the feed water that's required. So water use is, is a little complicated, um, but Essentially, when, when people do these water footprint analyses, and by water footprint I mean, you know, like say gallons of water required per pound of beef, they're looking at different types of water as well. So, you know, there's, there's green water, uh, which is essentially precipitation water. Um, and so sometimes when you see really high figures for water use, uh, again, for beef or their livestock products, what's happening is people are counting all the the rainwater, the snow that falls on grazing lands in America towards the water footprint of beef. Um, and, I mean, you can do that. I find that a little bit silly, right, because that water is going to fall whether mm -hmm. there are cattle right. there or not. Um, and then the second main type of water is blue water. And so this is surface and irrigation water. Um, or surface and groundwater that's typically used for irrigation, and then, of course, um, any drinking water for the cattle themselves. And so blue water is actually more of what we care about. Um, and, again, that's what we measure with life cycle assessment. So um, as a long-winded answer to your, to your question, essentially, you know, water use, yes, we use water, but, of course, when cattle drink water or they're eating feed, they're going to return that water right back to the local environment as well. Mm -hmm. um, so there's... In the sustainability space, there's lots of numbers that get thrown out there, and they sometimes don't mean what people think they mean. So then, I guess kind of a wrap-up question is, how are you taking these numbers and this research and this information that you're basically compiling for NCBA or on the cattlemen's behalf? You're obviously not working directly with the policy side of things, but how are you communicating this information to other producers or folks in the industry, that folks outside of the industry, I should say, that don't understand this stuff? 
Yeah, great. So we really do have a wide range of audiences. I think it's important to communicate, essentially preaching to the choir and communicating back to the agricultural community so they know what the facts are when they're posed with these questions themselves. So we do do a lot of that, whether it's cattlemen's groups or um, using some of our trade uh, trade magazines, trade media to get the, this information out there. Uh, we also do a lot of outreach to other people we would call influencers, so people like dietitians or other medical professionals or food bloggers, uh, people that are um, interfacing more with the general consumer or the informed consumer that has questions. Um, so we do a lot of that information as well, or, or dissemination of information, if you will, mm-hmm. as well. Um, and then we do have, of course, you know, beefitswhatsfordinner.com has some of this information on it. Um, but really the repository for all this information for the checkoff from a research perspective is beefresearch.org. So if anybody's listening and is interested in answering any of these questions from water use to carbon emissions, all the answers that you ever ever needed or didn't know you needed are on that website, beefresearch.org. Um, and then personally, I also try to do a lot of outreach uh, on Twitter. So I made the made the jump and uh, joined, joined <laughs> that social media site. So, um, you know, if anybody is on that platform and has questions, um, my handle is at Dr. Splace um, on Twitter. Awesome. Well, Dr. Sarah Place, thank you so much for your insight and information. This has been fascinating. Thanks for having me again. Appreciate it. Well, again, that was Dr. Sarah Place there with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Interesting stuff, and I encourage you to check out some of their research that they've been doing over there at NCBA. But uh, I think that really just shows you or highlights how much of a divide, as she mentioned, there is between people in agriculture and people outside of agriculture that really just don't understand that beef is sustainable. Raising livestock is sustainable, and we're really not contributing as a whole, that much to greenhouse gases and other environmental uh, related pollution. Yeah, exactly. And I really hope that, you know, in these next couple months or, you know, possibly years that we can really get that out there, that the um, information about um, livestock and agriculture as a whole. Absolutely. But folks, if you have information that you think we need to be sharing on the podcast, you know, folks that we should be talking to on the podcast, give us a shout on social media at Ag News Daily on Facebook or on Twitter. Or if you want to connect with me at Commodity Classic next week, feel free to give me a shout there. You can always check out any of our past episodes or other podcasts that are part of the Global Ag Network at globalagnetwork.com. Madison, with that, should we let the people go? Let's let them go. (laughs) 